This is Bonjour Chai, the Not Seeing the Forest for the Trees edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Melissa Lansman in Lockdown Toronto and Alana Zakon in mildly less lockdown Vancouver. We are your Frozen Chosen. How are you guys doing? I'm doing all right. How are you doing, Melissa? Well, it's, uh, we are totally locked down in, uh, in, in Toronto and uh, in the surrounding areas and frankly across the province. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm here. Hanging in there. Hanging in. How are you, Avi? Uh, I'm good. I just found out from a friend of mine who lives in Montreal and works in Cornwall that the border actually is, you know, closed uh, and there is a OPP as, as he goes in every single day. And I was like, yeah, what about coming back? He goes, Sûreté de Quebec, yeah, about one third of the time they're there. So, you know, it's okay to like, you know, they're, they're doing spot checks, but apparently I can't leave my province right now. So, but that's okay. I have nowhere to go. Fair enough. Alana, you, you're heading out. How, how are the bars and restaurants in Vancouver? Closed. I mean, you can, you can sit on a patio. Yeah, basically around the time of Passover, they announced that we were going back a step. Technically, you are allowed to congregate with up to 10 people outdoors, but we were now told it is highly discouraged. I don't know why they don't just change the rule. Yeah, um, we haven't had patios in a while but whatever. I haven't really been going. Have we, uh, have we just relegated to ourselves that we're going to be in this forever um, and that there might be no end in sight? I wouldn't go that far. That's the, that's the Toronto feeling. Yeah, I don't know. It's the Ontario uh, feeling. The end is in sight. Well, vaccines are rolling out here quicker than they were before. Yeah. My age categories should be around early June, so that's keeping me feeling a little more hopeful. <laughs> Are you guys into, have you guys seen the vaccine selfie um, movement? Uh, like yes. if you don't take like a picture. Like everyone taking a picture. It didn't happen. I, I, I did take a picture of mine. The, the one that I'm, I, I didn't see the, I mean, I've been seeing those. Yeah, they're everywhere. But the thing that I've gotten is in America, the, uh, the new uh, hashtag, uh, waxed and vaxed. Oh boy. Oh, okay. It's, That's original. It's a different oh, podcast. Well, you know, ready to take on the summer? Um, anyways. On today's episode, we talk about leadership, its failures, and its potential for the future. We interview Jason Sherman about his documentary, My Tree, in which he searches for a lost bar mitzvah gift and he finds himself instead. And we premiere a new segment, so stay tuned for that. But before we get to our first topic, let's hear from our first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atelier Lou Bijouterie in Westmount, Quebec. Atelier Lou specializes in custom-designed jewelry, as well as many lines, including Anzi, Deacon & Francis, Dana Bronfman, and many, many more. If you're looking to upgrade that engagement ring or pop the question, come talk to Eric and design the ring of your dreams. Atelier Lou is offering a promo code for all Bonjour High listeners using BON18 at checkout for 10% off your order at atelierlou.com. It seems like anything anyone wants to talk about these days is the failures in leadership of our elected officials or our communal leaders. But is the leadership actually bad or are they being asked to do something which is truly beyond any of us to handle? Does Judaism have anything to say about leadership? What about leaders in the Jewish community? Are they doing okay? What are you guys thinking? Is, is this really like massive failed leadership? Is there some hope? Where, where are we going from this? Well, look, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start here and I'm just going to say that, uh, you know, the feeling out there is that there is a, a crisis of uh, leadership. 
and the actual system um, is is broken and there's an unwillingness to go against the grain or think about uh, you know think outside of the the box or even take you know just the a modicum of uh, of the real advice and I think the the crises that we're not fail like that we're seeing right now they don't really stick to a script and they're not really easy answers. Um, but I think there's a feeling that the people in those leadership positions like, are exactly the opposite of what's required in this current context. And maybe that's always the case, but that's, you know, that's, the, that's the feeling. And it's a dangerous place to be uh, when people don't believe in their institutions and their leadership. Where, where do you think this like, lack of trust, is it, you know, where does this come from? Is it just people started trusting and they just stopped? Well, no, you know, I think from a political perspective is that we have, you know, we've got politicians making all kinds of decisions every single day. Some are harder, some are, some are easier, but none of them in, uh, in some regard have affected, you know, the very way that we live and we interact with each other. They're not this close to us ever. It's usually, you know, people moving money around and there's some policy changes, but there isn't something that it, it, there was never been a time where every single decision feels like it, you know, it gets into every part of your day and your being. And I think as a result, more people are paying attention to it and really questioning, like, who are these people? Why don't they make any sense? And why aren't they doing sort of the simple common sense things that we've now known, particularly around COVID for 14 months? So bringing it back to the Jewish element of this, in our modern day era, living in Canada as we do, do we see those, let's say, politicians or, or more authoritative figures as being our leaders? Or do you feel like you have a different authority figure that you look up to within the Jewish community? I, I mean, I think historically, there have always been different types of leaders, right? You have religious leaders, spiritual leaders, you have political leaders, um, and you have, you know, the, the quiet leadership, the people that really hold no official position in power, of position of power, but are... Um, they're out there and actually making stuff happen and, and making change work, um, what I would call quiet political leadership. And, I mean, do people look up to their rabbis anymore? I don't know. Nobody looks up to me. I'm just, a you know, some guy that does weddings and funerals and podcasts. I, like, I, you know, there are people, there are great rabbinic leaders, there are people that people look up to, but at the, you're, you're pointing out the fact that the nature of leadership has changed both in the Jewish community and the non-Jewish community. How many people look to our leaders of government as like leaders that we aspire to be to like we don't we don't look at our members of parliament you know and our you know premiers and go and say this is what we should aspire to this is what great leadership is i mean i don't you don't feel that in the in the day to day um and so i think what it is is that there's a vacuum in leadership there's a vacuum in greatness in the leadership and that's across the board jewish not jewish and you know, the, there are few people that are like that. I mean, I, Jonathan Sachs was definitely uh, a great leader, right? That really felt like he was a leader and was leading with his authority. Um, but those people are becoming increasingly few and far between. Sure. Do you, do you think that people sort of, you know, after we're, we're, we're out of this, you know, this current crisis, I don't know if, it, if there's an end date on it or if it, uh, or if it just sort of slowly dissipates and we kind of forget about it and then we do the same thing next time it happens. Do you think people flock back to non-political leadership or community leadership or, um, or, you know, do you think that we, we end up um, sort of lost in looking for something? What happens I, next, Avi? I don't know. I actually think that we are in an era where people think that they don't need some sort of leadership. 
um, and they they assume meaning the work of leadership, right? Like as you said, moving money around, government infrastructure, stuff like that. The vast majority of people don't feel that and never felt that, and so you become removed from leadership. And most of the things that you can do day to day, you don't think to yourself, "I need somebody else to like guide me in this." And so I think the nature of leadership has to shift, um, not back to reminding everybody, "Hey, we're here, we're going to do great, big, amazing things, and we're huge and we're important, and you should look up to us." Um, but shifting the nature of where it at where it's at. I think that, uh, I've, I've said this in the past, I think communal uh, institutions are going to be reshaped in different ways. People are going to become more autonomous in their own Jewish lives. And I think that people are going to start to become more autonomous in their own political lives. And they're going to recognize that the political leadership is there um, to get very important things done. Um, but in terms of, you know, changing the, uh, or shaping the dialogue uh, or the national, you know, discussion on various issues um, are not is not necessarily going to be relied on by um, by the political leadership anymore. Um, I, that's just my thing. You know, look, I, you know, sorry, I'm going to, you know, keep going on here just for a minute. I've always believed that it's hard to critique leadership um, simply because of uh, a very famous line uh, from, uh, you know, from political science that we don't know what we don't know. I personally don't know what goes on behind closed doors. And so I don't, it's hard to critique those decisions because I don't know what's going on behind there and I don't know what are the factors that I have zero clue on, right? Foreign policy decisions, I don't know what's going on there, right? There is so much that is being happening behind closed doors, behind really secret locked doors that it's better to not critique. Um, transparency is where trust comes up and where you're able to open these things up. Rabbis have learned that you no longer tell somebody right? Trust me, this is what you have to do. It's here's everything that I can tell you about this. You make your own decisions for yourself. Or if you want to know why I told you to do this, I'm going to show you the process. At the very, definitely, if you care, even if you don't care, I'm going to try to pass it along because I want to show you that I'm being transparent. There's nothing opaque. Opaqueness and leadership, right, do not go hand in hand. Um, and that's where I think that failure in leadership is happening right now that you guys are talking about is that there's just a decisions are being made they don't seem to be made based on science and they are so opaque and it's just trust me and the only thing that i can say about that um, is that i don't know if you're making the right decisions but i know that many people are making the wrong decisions and that's becoming clear to me and clear to a lot of people i think it really depends on how you define a leader i know we're talking about the pandemic specifically but bringing it to a broader scope i would say that what you call the what did you call them the quiet quiet leaders soft leaders soft power soft, pa soft leaders, power yeah. um the quiet leaders I, I don't know i feel like those people might be the most influential in the times that we live in because if you look back to at least from an ashkenazi perspective when we were back in eastern europe and kind of how communities were developed and they had their rabbi and they went to the rabbi for counsel i'm mostly thinking of fiddler on the roof right now but anyway um so you know and, and then a, now we're here you know that's a documentary that was that premiered at hot docs and a tefka 100 <laughs> percent. my point that i'm trying to make is that back in eastern europe it was a different structure and now that you know we're in canada we're a little bit more spread out and i think because of that and because a lot of people are not affiliated necessarily to a synagogue especially in the younger generations but even in in older generations sometimes like people are all spread out they might not live in a place with a strong jewish community and if they do the organizations that popped up as a result of, you know, coming to North America are the, the leaders now. So it, it goes down to as small as, you know, um, you know, a Hillel leader or 
um, someone who volunteers for their Jewish school, like the, you know what I mean? There's, there's so many ways of being involved. And I think those are leaders in, in different ways that maybe we can look at leadership in, in smaller scales. And those are the people that are making a difference. I, I look, I think this notion that we look at, you know, our politicians as, as leaders is, is, you know, something that we've concocted. I think it's always been communities. I think it's always been civil society. It's like, where do these ideas come from? Of course, they come from stakeholders. They come from associations. They come from religious communities. Um, and many of the people that were, you know, that are that are brought into these quiet leadership positions become, you know, they get to the decision making table, but they get there um, with uh, with an entire sort of history and worldview of of what has worked in their community. So I don't think the two are are necessarily um, sort of uh, different. I just think that we have become so reliant on somebody coming up to a podium with flags behind them to give us all of the answers. And at some point, we've got to think for ourselves and we've got to do what's best to ourselves. And we're looking for this because there's no clear right answer on this. There's a famous moment in a, in a bootleg that I have of a Bruce Springsteen concert um, from the 80s when uh, Reagan had been using his uh, Born in the USA, misusing it. Um, and he was really like, there was a lot of anger um, in there. And uh, he says, blind faith in your leaders will get you killed. And he was clearly referring to you know the Vietnam War, but like we have to stop having this blind faith. And I see this happen in you know in the rabbinic world, and it definitely has reverberations back to the political sphere. Uh, and I'm curious, Melissa, what your response to this is as somebody who is in this position, right? So there's I find that there's often two types of rabbis. You have rabbis who this is my position on a topic, right? This is what I believe. This is I I have a well thought out belief based on what I've learned. Uh, you know, in rabbinical school, in my constant Jewish studies, and what I see in the current events, or whatever it is, this is my belief in Judaism. Um, this is where I think, you know, I may be uh, pro a certain halachic position or pro a certain, you know, uh, civil rights decision based on a Jewish idea or whatnot it is, whatever it might be, um, and that's that. And people either flock to that position, and you are, a, you know, you I may teach you or preach you, to you if you are uh, of this same ilk because I publicize my ideas and that's it. Um, and then you have rabbis that are the opposite. They're like, listen, I. Know know a lot of stuff. I'm in my congregation. My congregation may believe something very, very different than I believe. Um, that doesn't mean that I have to impose my belief on the other person. I'm going to be responsive to what my congregants tell me, right? I may be, you know, anti, uh, you know, full trans inclusion in my community for whatever reason, and I, I maybe want to slow walk it. But if everybody in the community is telling me that this is where we have to go, then this is the place that we have to go, and I have to catch up with what my constituents are. And people are often confused when it comes, for example, members of parliament. Are are you in a position where you are stating a position and I either vote for that position or I vote for the other person's position? Or are you representing the people that you are intending to represent and you find out that 80%, I just want to win, I want to represent you, whatever your idea might be. And so if 80% of my population in my, you know, in my riding believes this, that's going to become part of my platform regardless of my personal beliefs. Right. And that's where a lot of confusion and leadership comes about, because people are often not sure where, where they stand, where their leaders stand, you know, on the poles between these two things. Look, I think it, I think it's somewhere I think it's somewhere in the middle. Like they've you know, they've elected uh, you because you have, uh, you know, a certain worldview, uh, you know, certain dynamism to share that uh, uh, that worldview and move the conversation forward. But of course, responsive uh, leadership to to the people that elected you is uh, is a 
important. So the, the answer is, is that you can be half pregnant on this. Um, and, and the truth is, it does come from, from somewhere uh, in the middle. And I think that all, all leadership and all decisions are, are about negotiation. It's about seeing all of the sides. Like we've, we've talked on this uh, podcast, like, oh, I don't, uh, you know, I don't frankly agree with, uh, um, with you two, you know, on, on much. Um, but I think the conversation is important to have in, uh, in the community. And that's what drives us forward to, uh, to, to, to have better outcomes, however that looks like, to be more connected, uh, to be more responsive to, uh, to each other and to know that, um, like this is a big tent. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, what you're highlighting there is actually, um, a really interesting piece about the conversation. And one of the, one of the, the, the flaws, right, where we're talking about massive failed leadership um, is that clearly the people that are bearing the brunt of these decisions, whether it's stay-at-home orders, uh, closing schools, closing indoor restaurants, um, people are not being listened to um, mm. and not rec- being not recognized. And it's not that I hear you and I'm sorry, but this is what you have to do because this is the science and I'm going to show it to you. The conversation isn't being happening, right? There are press conferences that are being sent out, right? And, and people are hearing this. They're like, I don't understand this because the doctors are not saying the same thing. And, and we just move on. And, and that's, there's a breakdown in conversation between leaders and, and the population. And the best members of parliament are the ones that are always in touch with their constituents. That and I'm I'm gonna I'm just gonna add one more thing like it it is it is on us as well. So when did we become a people where we wait for somebody to come to a podium and tell us how to live our lives? And I think that's a you know that's a failure of uh, of uh, of society as well. Like we've got to be able to question the rules and we've got to be able to have the power to vote um, on this uh, on this stuff. Yeah, I think. Want to get the last word? I think it gets tricky too though with with a pandemic. We haven't really experienced this type of you know, incident in our lifetimes before. So if nobody was telling us what to do, everyone would just be running around with like chickens with their heads cut off. So yeah, um, it's interesting. And uh, sorry, I'm going to give you back the last word, Alana. <laughs> I just wanted to say that the same is true within the Jewish community, right? That we we waiting for our, our you know stuff to happen um, in the political level for, our, but nobody waits in the Jewish community, right? We, you just live your life and you don't Make necessarily often think about where the rabbis are happening. Alana, give us the last word. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, I mean. Going back to my point before, I think it comes down to a bit of a mix of what we're all saying, you know, um, forming your own critical thoughts, um, doing your research, making your own stance, and then living as safely as possible. If we're talking about the pandemic, you don't want to put other people's lives at risk. And you have to, at the same time, recognize that, you know, we live in an economy and sometimes the choices that are being made by our higher ups aren't necessarily the smartest ones. But I don't know what else there is to do. Sorry, that's not, maybe that's not the best wrap up that you were hoping for, but that's all I got. (laughs) All right, moving on. Coming up, we're going to be hearing from playwright and film director Jason Sherman. In 1975, Jason Sherman, like many others of that era, received a certificate for his bar mitzvah. Instead of a Canada Savings Bond, this certificate represented a tree that had been planted in his name in Israel by the Jewish National Fund. Nearly 40 years later, Sherman goes to Israel in search of that very tree and discovers that all was not as it seems. The resulting story unfolds over the course of a feature-length documentary that is premiering at the Hot Docs Festival, and we are joined by the director and star, Jason Sherman. Jason, welcome to Bonjour Chai. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, now, without giving too much away, we want people to you know log in and uh, watch the movie when it uh, premieres officially. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what unfolds once you arrive in Israel? Well, of course, to do that, I, let me give you a little bit of the backstory before I get there. And and by the way, I don't mind giving too much away. I'm I'm, I'm not into the whole uh, the uh, spo spoiler culture. No spoilers. Uh, I think it's just a, a way for uh, bully boys to do their thing on uh, on the interwebs. So what happened is. Uh, probably about 10, nine, 10 years ago, somewhere around there. I went to Israel for the first time in my life, admittedly much later than most uh, members of the tribe go. Uh, most <laughs> Jewish kids I know went when they were still kids. Um, I went when I was in my late 40s. And I went because I was invited to a theater festival uh, because for most of my life, I was a playwright by trade. And uh, when I was there, I started to get all those feelings that one you know, naturally come to you after a lifetime of being raised with Israel in the in the background as being an important part of Jewish life, even in Toronto, or perhaps you could say in some ways, especially in Toronto, that even though you're not there, it's it's a very important part of your life and it's important to support it. And you grow up with the, the stories and the history and the this and that. And so being there for the first time and experiencing it and being on the land well, over the land first as you as you fly in i remember it, a strong really strong feeling that i saw it for the first time i was traipsing around and i i thought i, I did feel a strong connection but i also felt a kind of a strange disconnect um that there was something like i wasn't fully wholly embracing it wholly with a w and I thought, well, you know, I, I wanted to, I started thinking about the, a real connection, to, not just as, you know, a spiritual one, a, a cultural one, an historical one, but, a, you know, what, what made me part of this place. And the tree came to my mind, really did spring up sort of like that. So what, what actually happened was that I got the idea to look for my tree, but I decided to put it into a, a play. The, the, the idea of someone looking for the tree to, to, to write it um, as a sort of a plot point for a play. I have written several plays about growing up Jewish, uh, you know, being Jewish, uh, relationship to Israel, and so on. And I, I had left behind this sort of group of characters that were in these plays for a long time. And when I was in Israel, that that first time, I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to those characters, and one of the characters was gonna visit Israel for the first time and go look for his tree and so on. So I wrote that play. Um, it went through a whole series of development, you know, workshops and so on. But as I was working on it, I thought, actually, I think I want to make the movie itself. I want to make that doc. And so, yeah, I started to look into my tree and couldn't find the certificate that you get um it was 40 years earlier as you mentioned so i had to go through a whole series of steps to try to see if i could find you know not not the actual individual tree i mean you, know, you go to high park in toronto or wherever and you can see people who put plaques on individual trees i, I was I, you know i wasn't thinking i'd do that but at least i could find the forest or park or where nature reserve where, where it had been planted and i sought help from the people that plant the trees now, i didn't know I didn't know anything about the Jewish National Fund at the time. I didn't know about them until I discovered some other certificates in the family, that the family planted trees. And so I contacted JNF Canada, I contacted JNF Israel, JNF Israel slash Kakao, 
and they couldn't help me. They couldn't or wouldn't help me. That's another part of the story we can get into later if you want. And so, yes, I go to Israel. And I'm sorry for the very long-winded answer, but but the, the actual finding of the tree wouldn't make much sense without it. I get to Israel. I have hired a researcher to help me find the tree. She determines that given the year that it would have been planted, it probably was in one of these three places, most likely Canada Park. So I go to Canada Park. This is, mind you, after some other uh, diversions to, you know, meet a kibbutz gardener and a forester who tell me what kind of tree might 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 have been problems with those trees, etc. But eventually, yes, I do come to Canada Park, and I am taken on a tour of Canada Park uh, by a gentleman who started an organization called Zuchrot, an Israeli Jewish uh, fellow named Etan Bronstein Aparicio, who tells me that there once was an Arab village beneath where my tree now stands. And he tells me the story of how that village and two others nearby were taken in 1967, immediately destroyed. The thousands of people who lived there sent on their way on the road to Ramallah, never to return, never to be allowed to return uh, because of the forest that stands there now. The end or the beginning, if you will. If I could cycle back a little bit. Yes. You wrote a play on similar themes before making this venture out. So how does the play differ from what you encountered in the doc version? Well, so the play is, um, has many of the same elements of the journey that I go on, but in a fictional setting. And there, there are other, there's, there's another story going on on top of the, the search that that character goes on. Um, and it serves a slightly different purpose in the play. Um, but that play has never been done. It probably never will be done okay. for various reasons. Um, but I mean, really all I, all I meant in, in taking us through that uh, was, you know, is to say that that's really what sparked the idea of actually doing it uh, as a film. It didn't occur to me in the moment, I should make a documentary about this until I basically had written a, a kind of a, a, a different version so, of it. You know, it's almost as if, you know, watching the film, you keep bringing, it keeps bringing up this unstated question, right? right? That, you know, <laughs> Jewish organizations um, are often defending their positions almost exclusively as being right and without often the ability to admit that there was some wrongdoing on their part, right? And, you know, it, it, while the film is very much a personal journey, you're really underscoring this notion that organizationally, um, communally, um, we have a hard time recognizing that while we may be doing great things, uh, we're often doing things that are wrong and admitting the wrongdoing is one of the failures of the Jewish community. D do you feel that? Is that um, something that was, you know, really one of the goals of the organization, of, of the film? Uh, do you think that there's a way out of that? Do you think that there's a way forward? So there, there are a few questions in there, so let me try to parse them. I, I'll address that by sp speaking specifically about the organization in, and it really is one organization. Well, there are two. JNF Canada does separate itself from from Kakao, uh, or at least they have in a recent posting on the, on their website. And for people who don't know, um, Kakao is stands for Karen Kayem at Israel, which is the Israeli version, if you will, of the Jewish National Fund. And um, they are they are separate organizations, but neither one of them wanted to participate in the film. Um, I don't know why. 
I tried. Lord knows I tried. <laughs> I, I wrote letters. I made phone calls. I hired someone in Israel to help me uh, organize interviews. And you've seen the film. You know my interview style. It is. I, I was not about to turn into Mike Wallace when I was with the people from the JNF. Um, I was there to learn, uh, to learn everything I could about my tree, including when it was planted, where it was planted, why it was planted. And who better to answer those questions than the Jewish National Fund? Uh, they planted the tree, uh, but for some reason they chose not to, not, not to participate, as I say. So to answer your question, does the J and F have trouble uh, admitting that there's something else going on in those forests other than the nice green planting of, you know, the greening of, of certain parts of Israel? Uh, well, I mean, the evidence uh, would suggest so. The evidence is that um, a number of Jewish National Fund parks and forests, by one estimate, around nine, uh, some 90 you know, depopulated Palestinian villages sit underneath you know, these parks without really any recognition, except for the one in Canada Park, and even that recognition, which was hard fought for by this organization, Zahrat, that I mentioned before, does not speak of the destruction, the expulsion, so on and so forth. I do think that people have a hard time. Um, first of all, let's, let's separate between um, what people know and don't want to admit or talk about and what people just don't know. And this is an important point for me. It's a really important point for me because I discover, one of the things I discover in the film is that my parents gave me that tree. And I needed to know if they knew about the village and the destruction and basically the, dis the disappearance, not only of the village, but of the memory of, of the village, which is a whole other thing. And I, in talking to John Goddard, a journalist who first wrote about Canada Park for Saturday Night Magazine, I learned much to my relief, I have to say, that they wouldn't have known because the story just wasn't known in Canada at the time of my bar mitzvah, which was 1975. John didn't write his article until 80 or 81, something like that. And it was many years after that that CBC's Fifth Estate did a piece about Canada Park. So I just don't think a lot of people knew. And a number of, you know, a number of people I speak to in the film talk about this fact that, you know, donors just don't know. And if they knew, you know, they should, they should know. They should be given the opportunity to know. And then they can make their own decision about whether they want to plant a tree and you know whether they want to address the underlying or overtopping however you want to put it issues now if you want to expand that out into other organizations i mean we, we can talk about that i i you know the focus of the of the film is 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 the tree is the organization responsible for it and and yes to a certain extent it is you could say that jnf is somewhat emblematic of this more general attitude about the past about you know the israeli-palestinian conflict that there is only one story permitted um we just don't like to hear the other story um i i you know when you know i would do plays and we'd have q a's obviously and i say obviously because it seems like it's de rigueur these days to always talk about the play with an audience right afterwards and i would often you know get questions like you know, your, your, your play is really unbalanced. And I, I always came away from those 
believing that the reason that that questioner would would make a statement, you know, statement, not a question, like that is because I would present the Palestinian narrative alongside the Israeli Jewish narrative. People just aren't used to that, and it's it's it it, it can be hard to hear it, you know, for if you if you all your life you've grown up believing only the one story, you know. And you see that in the film. You see people struggling with it. You see me struggling. So, J- Jason, with it. I'll I'll continue on uh, on that point and on the you know on the point of, uh, of of balance. I know that this is a you know a personal journey for you, and it looks at one part of uh, JNF's history, but they have become um, and they are uh, you know a household name and charity in in Canada that, uh, you know, that's involved in social infrastructure and building cardiac centers and, and, uh, uh, you know, parks for, uh, for children with autism and a whole number of things for the Jewish people in, uh, in the Jewish homeland. Um, And does, you know, does, does the story erase all of that? Uh, Because I think that's, that's wonderful, Melissa, I wish they'd, I wish they'd come on camera and told me all those things. I really do. But look, is there is there a responsibility by it by you know by a filmmaker to, to to tell the whole to tell the whole story? Because I think you would find that in in Canada, mm-hmm. men, much of the giving is associated with uh, you know with that narrative as well, which is you know frankly missing. Is that is that right? Is is that what what people mostly think about the JNF? I mean, I think it's wonderful that they do those things, but their their forward facing story is we have planted two hundred and forty million trees in Israel. From 1901 and that is the focus of the film so let's say for example that they had come on camera or that i had mentioned it at some point or someone else had mentioned it that's great i don't think that detracts from the the story that i'm telling does it well it's, a, it's certainly a missing piece is it yeah, i'm sorry i'm gonna i'm gonna agree with you jason because it's this is not an either or melissa this is a yes and they can be doing wonderful things and building cardiac centers and building 200 and planting 240 million trees. They can be doing all of this stuff for Israel and still harbor something which is less than savory for which they are not talking about. And I'm not, and I think the vast majority of people will recognize that they are doing good things. Um, and I think the, just the, the point of the film is just to say, uh, that's wonderful. It's, most people aren't aware of it. Most people think they are doing great things. I just want to point out, right? I, the director, Jason here, right here, wants to point out that there are things which um, are not being said. Yeah. And I, you know, I, and I, I appreciate that. I appreciate both what you're both saying. But I want to get back to this, the R word, responsibility. Uh, you know, if let, let's take it on face value that that a filmmaker has a responsibility to present both sides of an issue or three sides or 12 sides. Uh, I, I'll just, I'll I'll repeat. I did everything I could to get the JNF both in Canada and in Israel to take part in the film. So my question to you is what is their responsibility to accept my offer? To, to take part in the film and tell me all the wonderful things they Absolutely do. Absolutely fair, I, I, and I'm you know I'm yeah. not I'm sort of not coming here as a, as a representative of, of the JNF. I'm just asking the question: um, mm-hmm. Is there you know is there a missing piece in this? Because there is a whole lot more to the JNF. I grew up with it just like uh, just like you did, and it's evolved uh, since then. And uh, you look, I've paid attention to 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 how it's evolved. And are you suggesting that others haven't? 
Um, or maybe that just wasn't the piece of your uh, your film. I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say whether other people what other people think or, or or have experienced. I know my experience, and and that's what I put in the film. And my experience is I knew nothing about the Jaina going into this into this film. And as I and you know, that's someone who is fairly well read about Israel. So you know they they were a mystery to me. Uh, in some ways they still are, <laughs> but. Um, I also believe, and you may not believe this, but I believe that we're, we're part of a continuum. So this conversation is part of the film now. And so you have put it out there that they, and thank you for doing that, that they also do all these wonderful things. And I maintain that I would have included those wonderful things in the movie if only, not only sat down with me, but agreed to let me use the interview. But anyway, I think we're getting away a little bit from the main thrust of the film, which is, the use to which that tree was put. That's the, that's the story of the film. I, um, you know, I'm, I was struck actually by, uh, you know, t to underscore what you're saying, there's a line in, in middle of the film where one of the, uh, one of the Palestinians uh, whose village keeps getting, you know, uh, raised basically to the ground uh, says, if you have land, you have life. Um, and, and, and that that to me is, you know, almost the tagline of the film that there the trees, put roots down in the land and trees are there to say we are here we're not going anywhere and it's easier to have a forest and it's more secure to have a forest than it is to have grassland right and and that this becomes this this big idea and i think that that's you know th that theme there of saying it's trees are there because they are unspoken centuries right for for holding on to this land and i uh, there's something really powerful about that image there is there is and it was really important to me to you know, you know, expand the story, if you will, so that it's, it, I didn't want to go there and say, oh, this terrible thing happened way back then, you know, shame on those who did it. That would be one thing, you know, I, and, and, and to look at my responsibility for it and complicity in it and so on, how I was made complicit. But the fact is that it's still going on. And so the question I ask myself, and it is, and it's a question I'm asking myself, and if other people want to take that on, great. And if you don't, that's up to you. But the question is, what is my responsibility for the fact that it's still going on? And and can we have an organization, Melissa, to come back to your point? I don't want to harp on it, but you, can we have, can the JNF, you know, be that organization, does all those wonderful things, but doesn't do those other things that aren't so wonderful, you know? And, and why not? And 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 why can't we have a conversation about it? That's, that's really what I want to know, you know, why, you know, why not? Why, why can't we sort of come back to Avi, your, your, your first question, the question you asked about, you know, or do we not even want to talk about these things? I think we have to. I, I, I really think we have to. I'm really hoping that, you know, people aren't going to dismiss the film just on, on hearsay. Uh, you can dismiss it after you see it. That, that, that's cool. That's up to you, you know. <laughs> and, and if you don't want to see the film, that's fine, too. But if you see the film, I really hope that you're going to take on take it on in the spirit in which it's intended, which is to open up conversations about these things. I was curious, going back to your playwriting and writing, and this is just coming from my perspective because I also work in theater, how this documentary might affect or influence or inform your future work moving forward. I, I don't know exactly when you actually shot the documentary. Was it recently? The scenes in Israel were shot five years ago. 
how will it affect my future work in theater? I, I meant more so in terms of the content that you're writing because you just went on this whole journey and and it does seem, and in my research, I, I noticed that you focus on a lot of these themes of being Jewish, Israel, and you know the conflict and all that. So how might this experience of finding your tree inform or change the, the themes or deepen certain topics? I, I don't want to sound make it seem like I'm sound, like I'm being glib, but I, I really the answer is I'm not sure. Um, I, I guess that'll, yeah. I'll, we'll have to sort of see. I have written, you're right, uh, a few plays on, on these themes. Um, I also write widely on, on other topics and I, I likely will again, um, but we'll see. I mean, it, it may be that I want to, you know, I, I mean, it's such a, it's such a huge topic. Right. And I, I and I really struggled with keeping it focused. And but it raises so many other things. I mean, we've touched on a couple of them. And I, and I think that's a good thing that, that it can raise those. And I, I, people who've seen earlier cuts of the film have, have said, well, I went down this rabbit hole after seeing it. and I wanted to know more about that and that. And that's great. But I might, you know, one of the things I had to not include thematically in the film is a discussion about sort of parallels with Canada and our indigenous people. And they just, you know, don't want to get into the weeds. We, we also have a great culture. We have a huge culture of tree planting as well. BC, BC. We do. You, not a, not a, no, I mean, I didn't because I'm a good Jewish boy from Montreal, but many people I know went to tree plant in BC for a summer. That's, that's not actually what they did there. You're right. Sorry. That's what you thought. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the backbreaking, yeah, uh, work of, yeah, and the black flies and the, but but I but I, I gather Melissa's talking about extracurricular activities, um, so it may lead me to other, you know, to write something about something closer to home, if you will, you know, physically closer. I mean, I mean, the film is partly set, half set here as well, and that is important that it's talking about, you know, the relationship between here and there. But I, but definitely. Uh, it's gonna. It makes me want to make more movies. I'd like to. I'd like to really, you know, moving towards the end here. I want to wrap things up, but I. Um, it seems to me that one of the strongest um, takeaways from the movie um, comes at the very end, where you actually you actually interview the former president of the JNF. Um, I, I'm curious, actually, first of all, as an aside, uh, this clearly was not an authorized official through the front channels of the JNF. You did, did you just find him in the phone book and? call him up and he was like yeah I'll... pretty much great <laughs> pretty much i mean uh i i found you know as you see in the film his name comes up in the in a bunch of documents in the archives i look him up online thankfully he has you know a website and a, and a contact email and he was more than happy to chat with me more more than happy to and and you're right it wasn't official but then he's he's sort of uh, emeritus but but, but what's interesting and and really, it's a it's a highly personal and beautiful moment, and I encourage everybody to like watch it, even if they're about to hear the spoiler. But it's really a touching moment uh, where you tell him this stuff, um, and you know he's really soaking it in for the first time, really. And and you're not you're not questioning whether he is papering things over. Um, and and there's this moment where you ask him, right? Was I wrong to feel bad? And he says, No, right? I wasn't. You weren't wrong to feel bad based on what you saw. 
Um, and then he, you know, proceeds to give a convoluted, in, in your, you know, estimation, you know, maybe some sort of convoluted answer for why he thinks it was may have been justified or this or that. I'm not going to get into that piece. Um, but to me, the universal takeaway of that moment and really the, 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 the upshot of the entire film is not that you're giving people an answer and to say that the answer is not X, right? Israel is great because Canada has planted hundreds of millions of trees over, you know, the history of Canada. It's, it's just... And, and but if the answer is not that, but it is this in which uh, the, the narrative is purely, you know, from the Palestinian side, it's about raising these questions, right? And, and that moment where he's really grappling with the question for the first time, literally, in his entire life, right? I, I think that you've succeeded in a brilliant moment as a documentary filmmaker to go and have us quest, question, right, the things that we have been taught without giving us any answers, without saying this is the right way to think. You must be like independent Jewish voices. It is perfectly legitimate once you have come up with an answer, with, with the multiplicity of answers to come up with your own answer, and it may disagree with you, uh, you know, as a filmmaker, but, but the fact that you're giving people this opportunity to ask, to ask the, themselves these new questions um, is a great moment, and I think that that's where we're standing in in 2021 with so many of our institutions, um, and this one especially. Well, thank you, thank you, Avi. That was that 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 is a powerful moment. In, if I can stand back, and, uh, but even in the moment, I felt that that I could see he was. He, I don't know if he'd ever been asked those questions before. It certainly felt like it in the moment, and I, and you're quite right. I also. You know, I mentioned I didn't turn into Mike Wallace. I was I, I, I did not want to, you know, wag a finger, in, you know, in that gentleman's face. I just wanted to hear his truth. And, and he gave it to us. And, and I think his answer was, although it took a few twists and turns, it was in, in a sense, there was a straight line through. And that straight line is we were there first. And besides, they ran away. So that's his truth and his understanding. And for people watching who might know differently uh, or have a different take on things, then it's up to you to, you know, to, to struggle with that. You know, which, you know, to, to, to do, do you, like, in, you know what, in, in a way, it's, it's easier to believe his truth. It's, it's a good story. It's a simple story. It's harder to go and dig into the archives and the other you know, histories and the things that are coming out and continue to come out and grapple with, well, maybe it wasn't as simple as that and so on and so forth. And, but, but uh, hopefully I've presented that in a way that, that is, you're able to absorb and then walk away with the questions, as you say. Well, thank you, Jason Sherman, for sharing with us your truth. Um, for those who want to uh, learn uh, Jason's truth and to, uh, come to their own conclusions, uh, or at least raise the questions within themselves. You can watch the film. It's called My, My Tree. It's uh, it's at Hot Docs. When is the official premiere? Tomorrow, Thursday, April 29th. Plays till May 9th. April 29th um, at Hot Docs. Uh, check it out, and uh, hopefully uh, we're open a great dialogue um, in the Canadian Jewish community. Thank you again. And, and I, I want to thank you guys. I really appreciate this conversation, and, and I hope it's emblematic of, of the kinds of conversations that will come out of the film. And I mean that. We'd like to start trying something new here. We'd like to highlight some rabbinic voices from across the nation as they share some bit of wisdom with us. Today, let's hear from Rabbi Aaron Polanski, who is the rabbi at the Beth Israel Congregation in Kingston, Ontario. Hi. So I don't know about you, but I don't have any time. I don't even have time to record this for you, but 
we've carved it out here. My kids are just chomping at the bit, trying to get my attention and there's just no time. And then on the other hand, I feel like all we have is time to sit in our homes and just wait for this lockdown to be finished and this pandemic to be over and to get to normal life. So sort of two opposite things happening at the same time. On the one hand, there's not enough time. And on the other hand, there's really just too much of it. And uh, this week's Torah portion is uh, speaks to me about time. There's a, a couple of verses right at the beginning of Leviticus where we are commanded to set aside time. So it says, speak to the Israelite people and say to them, these are my fixed times, the fixed times of the eternal, which you shall proclaim as sacred occasions. Now, Rashi and many other commentators say that that's about the festivals, but Avraham ibn Ezra, um, he says that that is about Shabbat. And specifically because it says, these are my fixed times, Moadai. So he's saying that Shabbat is fixed by God, whereas the other festivals, the other appointed times, are actually fixed by people. And he explains that. He says, back in the uh, days of the temple, the Beit Din had to hear from witnesses who say they saw the new moon and then they would know when the festival needed to be established. And then later on, they figured out calculations to determine the timing of the festivals. But all of that was done by people, but not Shabbat. Shabbat belongs to God. And God has told us that Shabbat occurs on the seventh day, and that is that. So, in other words, time doesn't belong to us. As much as we lament having too much of it or not enough of it, it's out of our hands. It belongs to God. The passing of time, the timing of our Sabbaths and festivals does not depend on us, but we very much depend on it. And I think that if we are to take the pressure off of trying to control our time and just go with it and let go of it and realize that it really belongs to God and not to us, then maybe we won't be so stressed out about either having too much of it on the one hand or not enough of it on the other hand. Hope that helps and makes sense. And let's move on to our Nachas of the Week, where we'd like to highlight something which has come across our radar and given us some Nachas as Jewish Canadians. Melissa, what's your Nachas of the Week? Oh, well, since we've been having this conversation throughout the show about, um, you know, about, about leadership and frankly, film, uh, I'm going to make a plug here. The Hot Docs Documentary Film Festival is, uh, is coming up. There are a multitude of titles, including My Tree, which we, uh, which we just heard about. Um, but other, you know, other, other thinking films that get you really, really questioning. I'm, I'm plugging this because I'm on the board of Hot Docs. I'm really proud of this festival, and I'm really proud about the work that they, uh, that they do in raising up filmmakers to ask the real tough questions. So if you're sitting at home like you are in Ontario and you're never leaving your house, I got something for you to do. So check it out online. Hot Docs International Film Festival. There's a whole slate of uh, Jewish films. There's also there is. There is. Uh, there's. There's a lot of interesting films. There's. You know. You, you've. You've always got the. Uh, you know. The questioning on. Uh, on. On Holocaust film. There's a short called uh, Scumboy, uh, which is a South African Jewish trans man um, 
living uh, his life. Amazing. And uh, yeah, check it out. There's lots of titles. You can just type in Jewish, which is sometimes what I where I start. That's where you start with everything, right? More or less. Google's searches are always Jewish. Yeah, blank. I get up in the morning and just search Jewish on the internet. Alana, what about you? What's Alana? your notes of the week? Um, I, on the movie theme, but on a lighter tone. If you're looking to not think as much. Um, I just heard about a new movie that is written and starring Billy Crystal and Tiffany Haddish. A veteran comedy writer forms an unlikely friendship with a street singer. So, you know, always great to have Jewish movies starring Jewish people. Apparently, they're friends in real life. Apparently, he was at her bat mitzvah that she did, her famous one I, when she was in her I 40s. I could totally see that. Are you picturing like him as the rabbi at the bat mitzvah? Yeah, totally. But that, that was the yeah, real life part. The movie, he's he's a writer. I, I, I'm saying, oh, oh. no, no, no. I'm saying in real life, I'm totally imagining Billy, Billy Crystal. Crystal as Tiffany Haddish's rabbi at her body. That would spot. be amazing. Uh, so the movie comes out May 7th. I'm not sure where you can see it because of COVID, but if you find out, let us know because I think this movie looks great. What about you, Avi? Um, my nachas, I'll give two quick nachases. Um, one, actually, is the platform that we use to record this um, is actually called Riverside.fm. It's a podcast recording platform that uh, allows for podcast creators to uh, really showcase their product. It's a much higher quality recording uh, software. And anyways, it's a great product. Um, and I just found out that it's Israeli. So uh, shout out to Riverside.fm. You know, thanks for giving us this you know, product, and uh, we hope to re keep recording on it. Um, and then the other thing that I'm going to talk about is I always laugh at Tubishvat in Canada because it always comes up like in January or February, and it's like the last thing that people can think about is trees and nature and the environment. Uh, but come April, and like the world just comes alive. And uh, I've been pushing my family to do, not pushing, I mean, we, we, we've been doing it. We've been starting to go on hikes once a week on Sundays. Um, do you know that Japanese have a term for going on hikes in nature? They call it forest bathing. It sounds. Uh... Yeah. So, so yeah, it's not, my, my kids are just as reluctant to take a bath as they are to take a forest bath. But um, we've been going on family hikes every Sunday and I highly encourage people to, uh, to do this, to get out uh, while you can, because you cannot lock down nature and uh, you can be outside and really enjoy. And it's such an antidote from like the many, many hours of screen time that we've been experiencing uh, over the past month. So uh, go grab your family, go grab your loved ones, go grab yourself and just go, uh, don't grab yourself but uh go and uh go go take a hike thank you for listening to bonjour chai for thursday april 29th our producer is michael freeman technical production by andre goulet and our music is by so-called we are a project of the jewish living lab and are distributed by the cjn podcast network subscribe on apple spotify or wherever you get your podcasts please leave us a comment and a rating on the platform of your choice and let us know what you think about our discussions on the cjn lounge on facebook i'm avi feingold and i'm melissa lanceman and i'm ilana zakon 